Uh, we're in Parashat Noah on page 30. I'd like to share with you a thought. Um, it starts with an old vision perspective on this idea, and then I'll continue to give you what I think is a new perspective, which I think is just as true in terms of message, and maybe even more true in terms of what actually took place. The question, I even talked about this last night, is about the shift in who Noah was, as the Torah seems to describe him to us. The very onset of Parashat Noah, in page 30, as we're introduced to who Noah was, the first pasuk of the parasha says, Ele toledot Noah, Noah ish sadik tamim haya bedorotav. Noah was a sadik tamim, he was an ish sadik tamim, he was righteous and complete. Now, the word bedorotav, the rabbis have a question in his generation, what about other generations? But fundamentally, I'd like to be known as an Ish Sadiq, irrespective of what generation I live in. And that is in stark contrast to the last vision we have of who Noah was. Because right after Noah, or shortly after Noah disembarks, the end of Parashat Noah, that's on page 42, on page 42 in Perektet, in Pasuk Kaf, at the bottom of page 42, the Pasuk says, Vayachel Noah ish ha'adama vayita karen. Noah, the man of the earth. It doesn't sound great to be a man of the earth. I mean, maybe it could be positive. It's certainly not as great as an ish sadik tamim. And the planting of the vineyard certainly doesn't turn out all that well. We shortly read about how Noah becomes drunk through eating from the grapes, which he apparently quickly turned into wine and in turn exposes himself and doesn't end his life in the Torah's narrative in a very positive way. So first and foremost, I'd just like to address for a moment or two an old perspective, which I think is very relevant in terms of its message with regards to what changed in the life of Noah. From the beginning, where he's an individual, he's an ish sadiq, to the end, when he's an ish ha'adama. To the beginning, when he's listening to everything God says, to the end, when he's, well, just acting in a reckless fashion. I mentioned this last night, I'll just briefly mention it again, because I think the message is very significant. And that is that Noah, the beginning of the parasha, and through much of it, is a person who knows how to listen to instructions. When there's guidelines and structure provided for him, he knows how to heed the call. He's throughout the parasha, Oseh. He's doing as God commands. God tells him to enter these animals, he does so. God tells him to build, he does so. God tells him to be on the ark for that period of time, 40 days and 40 nights, and he does so, and he knows how to heed the call of God at all times. It's when he disembarks, it's when he gets off the teva, when all is said and done, when the world is now no longer one in which he's invited into dialogue or to follow the conversation with God to what he needs to do, when he needs to build for himself his own structure, when there's no clear guidelines, that's where he panics, that's where anxiety takes hold of him. I think we can each relate to this in our own lives in different situations. When we know what's expected of us, when it's clear what the right thing is to do, oftentimes, if we're not lazy, if we're not uh, lured into something different, we can rise to the occasion and do it. 
it's in the gray zone, when it's not black or white, when we don't know exactly what to do, well, that's what tests who we truly are. So at the beginning of the parasha, with regards to heeding the call of God, ish tzadik tamim, he's the individual who knows how to listen to God. We can look at him and point and say, he was the paradigmatic listener. He knows how to listen to God. He knows how to do what's expected of him when he knows what's expected of him. The end of the parasha, when he enters into a world where there's no longer a conversation with God, where his task is done and he needs to now build something, so to speak, from scratch, that's where he panics. That's where many people, when they feel hollow, when they feel that their life is hollow and they don't have a clear direction, they become drunk. They fill their life with some sort of alternative, external, artificial feeling. That's the end, unfortunately, of Noah's life. But I'd like to, for a moment or two, or a few more, develop a different thought with regards to who Noah was. I'd like to suggest, ironically, that the Noah at the beginning of the parasha and at the end of the parasha is the exact same person. He's just, and he's even maybe acting in similar ways. He's just in a different point in time in God's universe, in God's plan. And so that, that's the plan for me to set that forth for you. I'll explain what I mean in just a moment or two. I just begin it with one more question. The one more question goes like this. What was it that was accomplished through the flood that's described in Parashat Noah? You see, there's a flood because, say it again, wipe out all the bad people. Was it effective? Very clearly not. I'll prove it to you. Firstly, the Torah follows up the story of Noah with Migdal Bavel, with people who were clearly not on their way to doing something positive. At worst, Avodah Zarah, at best, some sort of self-centered approach to life. Uh, not positive. Furthermore, the Torah tells us what God's objective initially was. You'll find that on page 26, at the end of Parashat Bereshit, the Pasuk says, Vayar Adonai ki adam ba'aret libo rak ra kol hayom. Loosely translated as, God sees, God saw, that the yeser, word we talked about a lot last week, of man, of humankind, was ra, was evil only driven by envisioning, seeing, and acting with evil. What about when all was said and done? Well, again, we saw in terms of action, it didn't get better. Listen to, so to speak, God's word, words himself. Listen to what it says in the Torah with regards to after the flood, on the bottom of page 38. We're imagining some sort of positive perspective. I'm sorry, so much skipping around. We're imagining some sort of optimism. The bottom of page 38. Pasuk says, God, so to speak, a point we've talked about on other occasions, smells this pleasant odor from the sacrifice of Noah. Interesting. God says to himself, um, okay, don't take that too literally, but understand the message more than anything. I'll no longer curse the ground because of and, or on behalf of humankind. Because the inclination, the proclivities of human beings is evil from their childhood. 
Nothing changed. Nothing is different. The flood was because everyone is yetzer ra, and God says, you know something, I'm going to leave it now. I'll no longer do this. Why not? Because they're evil. Uh, conceding. I just destroyed everything. And I'm like, oh, is he saying he was wrong? Is he saying something is different? It sounds almost identical in description of who human beings are. Nothing that should surprise us all that much, unfortunately. She created us. So then what was, what are we supposed to learn? The best way for me to say it, the best way for me to say it is, what are we supposed to learn from the story of the Mabu? And uh, to say God changed his mind, uh, what do those words mean? To say that the Torah tells us this story and injects those words, that God changed his mind, is for us to say there's something to be learned from this. Yes, Bishop. Certainly. So then what was the point of this destruction? What was the Mabul for? Right afterwards. Right, this is right after the Mabul. Right after the Mabul. Oh, um, God, God himself, mind you, right? Oh, um, it's not going to work, so I'm just not going to do this again. I don't know. <laughs> okay, wait, let's say it's one generation. Let's say, I, I don't know. I hear you, but again, so it's a punishment of sorts to warn us for the future, but then a concession. I would suggest instead it's two modes. I'll, I'll, I'll try to level this to each of us. It's two modes of dealing with other people. For me and you, with other people, with God, uh, dealing with people. Uh, the way you can deal with um, uh, children, our children, friends, communities, our perspective on projects. You can have a here and now perspective. If it's not fixed, if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, if this mechanism is not working the way it's supposed to go, if this project is not succeeding, let's tear it down. There's no long-term, broader perspective and vision. It's terrible. It's terrible because it's not working. My child isn't listening to me. Something is wrong. Look at what he or she is interested in. Everything is wrong and needs to be fixed immediately. One perspective. No view of breadth. No ability to see long term. Alternatively, the complete opposite. Well, that's where we are in this moment. Let me look ahead. Let me realize. Let me broaden my perspective. Let me understand that there's opportunity here. Down the line, what seems downright terrible in this moment, through process, through the journey, through experience, will develop if I set this in motion and continue it going. Which means to say, in a word, in a word, the mabul is a demonstration of no process whatsoever. Things are bad, destroy. The aftermath of the mabul is Humanity and the world as you and I are supposed to understand it. We're supposed to contrast our lives today, our relationship with God, relationship with one another, to God's treatment of the world then. Don't say that one and done. If it's not working, destroy it. Instead, broaden your perspective. You know something? Since they are yetzer ra mine'urav, let me keep the world. Let me allow for it to develop. 
because nothing will be accomplished by seeing it only here and now. The world we live in, by definition, needs that breadth. It's a feeling which is very hard in this moment to bring forth, but I want to nonetheless say, because I remind myself of this every day in the last few weeks, but always when I think about Israel. It's the Torah's description of Israel. The Torah and Parashat Ekev in Pesukim that I love very much contrasts life there to life in Egypt. And God says, in Egypt, you had irrigation born uh, within the land, which means to say you went and you planted the land and it was easily and naturally irrigated from the Nile. There was an overflow, it was fertile land, it was Kigan Yarak. The land of Israel is altogether different. It's a place where you're going to have to see breadth of perspective. It's the place where you're going to have to search for rain. You're going to have to seek out and realize I need a long-term plan. I say it all the time. Only four years I lived in Israel, but you need long-term perspective until today living in Israel during times that are not warlike. Israel is never simple. I believe it never will be simple. I refer to when I live, I have silly examples, many silly examples, which I repeat to my sisters who live there and tell them that's what's hard for me. I joke about that, but I mean it. Everybody knows, economically, and there's a lot of funny stuff. It's the country which is most advanced in terms of technology, and yet, they don't have Amazon. My sisters told me now they do. My sisters told me now they do. But I'm saying they have so much and so much works and is great. And at the same time, things are difficult. Life has never been simple. Not now and not in the past, living in Israel for one reason or another. I think it's endemic to the experience because I think that's a real experience. A real experience is complicated. It's complex. It means that I need to see the long-term goal. It means I need to live through this and realize that I'm not going to have it in the here and now. So to say it again in a word, the mabul is the antithesis of that. Destroying the world because it's not working is a way of saying there's no long-term goal. You can't work right now. You're not good. You're male Hamas. Destroy you. After mabul is a new perspective. It's a perspective we're supposed to have to life. Yes, it is ra kol hayom. It is ra urav. That's why we need to live. That's why we need to develop. We need to continue going. We need to treat our children in such a fashion, our projects, our marriage. Everything needs to be seen with some sort of long-term perspective and goal. That's how I understand the mabu in a nutshell. If that's the case, I bring you now to the life of Noah, first through the eyes of the hachamim and then back to the way we began it. First in the eyes of the rabbis. So the eyes of the rabbis, Noah was an ish sadiq tamim, as the pasuk describes. But they, Rashi, at the end of Parashat Bereshit, mentioned something somewhat ironic and funny. The pasuk says that Noah is named Noah because this individual will give us a certain consolation, or consolement is probably the right word. From Mima'asenu, I'll find the pasuk at the end of Parashat Bereshit, it's on page 26 again, and Noah's birth is over here in Pasuk Kaftet. Vayikra et shemo Noah lemor, the parents of Noah name him Noah. Ze yenachamenu mima'asenu, umi'itsevon yadenu, min ha'adama asher erera Adonai. This individual, prophetically, maybe not even realizing so, will bring us a consolment from the cursed ground. Noah will be the possibility to have a life where the ground is not so cursed. 
Why was the ground cursed? That was the consequence of eating from Etz Hadat. We ate from Etz Hadat. What was the punishment? Thorn and thistle. You're going to have to sweat in order to bring forth bread. Right? That was the life. Difficult life. It was. The Torah describes it. What else was the consequence, by the way? Kind of relevant to conversation right before the class. What else? Childbirth. Pains of birth. Joyce, last week it would have been perfect timing when Joyce, she was pained in the class, right? In other words, it's a description of difficulty process. You don't just have bread. You don't just make a living like that. Your relationships with your children is not simple. It's nine months of difficulty just to begin it before they're even born. Process, that's what it was. Noah is going to end that. We'll have a cessation of sorts, done with pain from the ground. The rabbis, I promise. Not clear, I don't think so, but they want it done. In fact, the Hachamin mentioned, Rashi cited on this pasuk, that Noah, in their vision, in their tradition, in their understanding, created the first plow. What's the significance? A plow made a way of overcoming of circumventing the difficulty of the ground. The ground had thorn and thistle. It was hard to, to work it. Now you have a plow, now you have instruments and tools to work the fields. Things are now easy. Who is Noah then? Noah is ending the difficulty, the long-term perspective, the vision for the future. Noah is, the ground is hard, so make it easy. Noah's life is hard. You, that journey seems arduous. So finish it. Zip to the end. He, in their eyes, he stands for, he embodies the end of life the way it's supposed to be. Right? Do you follow? In other words, he's... I'm not up to that one yet. That's at the end of the parasha. At this point, at this point, Beatrice, I'm at the beginning of his life in the eyes of the rabbis. They, so I don't know if this... That's how his parents want it. And in the eyes of the rabbis, things did get easier. In the words of the Midrash and Tanhuma, since things got easier, therefore we began to sin. The easier life sometimes is, we remember that from the end of Noah's life, the message at the beginning, the easier it is to get distracted and to get caught up with the wrong things. But the reason I mention this is to say that I think their, their, their description of who Noah was is a description of an individual who doesn't go through with a long-term vision, who can't set out on the journey, who can't be involved in that process. Agreed. Noah is the chosen person, the way the Torah describes it to us, for the Mabu. Noah embodies no process. Noah embodies the quick fix. Noah is the individual who we were supposed to struggle with the ground and through that and with our relationships and through that grow and Noah instead, according to their understanding, gets around that, makes the plow, no difficulty any longer. So yes, the description in the Torah is God's treatment of the world along the lines of Noah. It's after all what his parents wanted. They didn't want this process any longer. I want the process, and you're an evil person, or people who are involved with Hamas, done, finished. That's God's, so to speak, lesson to humanity. When you think life without process is a life 
well, then life is done because it's not worth having. Instead, let's restart it. That's, that's what I'm imagining already. So to put it in a sentence, one more time. Parashat Noah, the personality who is Noah, and the Mabul, which is what happens in Noah, is all about life without a long-term perspective. It's about not living life, experiencing relationships, being involved in everything that's difficult while realizing this is difficult, supposed to be like that, will be like that, it'll be enriching hopefully down the line, but I can't cut out of this. Mabul instead is, it's difficult, it's wrong, get rid of it. Noah instead is, the ground is hard, get past it. Do you follow? We're certainly not privy to them. It certainly, furthermore, would very much align with the personality we're describing. Let me take it a step further, Amma. Avraham is the opposite of Noah. Avraham is always journeying. Avraham, in a moment where God, in Perek Yot of Bereshit, turns to him and says, I'm going to destroy a city, Sedom, because they are ra'im v'chata'im l'adonai me'od. Avraham says, wait, wait a second. Maybe we can save them. And a whole chapter, a whole perek in the Torah telling us about his pleading. Noah, none of that. You want to know why? Because Avraham is, let's look at the possibility. Maybe there's five righteous people there. Maybe there's a couple of righteous people. Maybe we could fix something. Noah's the opposite. No emotion because he's very much, you know, what, what a, a Jewish mystic would say, he's deen. He is, if this is the way it's supposed to be, and it's not like this, well then let's do away with it. Right? That's who Noah is. I, I've, I've more than once imagined as well that there's a lot of imagery in, in that last story when Noah plants the vineyard and ends up becoming intoxicated from it and in turn ends his life in that terrible way. It's very much, I think, connected to this as well. I think it's very much telling with regards to who we're dealing with and this sort of lesson. But I'd, I'd bring it back a few steps. What's that? I don't know how he dies, but that's the end. The last story is some terrible story with his children. He reveals himself. You're familiar with this? He comes drunk. He reveals himself. Something happens with one of his sons. Another one of his sons uh, cover him. The end. And he curses one of his sons, blesses him, finished. Uh, not a great ending, but a lot of clues there. I've, I've focused on it a lot in the past. I'd like to spin it a little bit differently t today. So it goes like this. Uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm tapping in purposefully to midrashic accounts of things to try to get across what I think is embedded in the words of the rabbis on this. I think they're, they're, they're carefully fine-tuning the story of Noah, connecting it in some way or another to the story of Adam and Chava to teach this lesson in a very almost graphic way. It goes like this. There is in the Gemara in two places, in Berachot and in Masechet Sanhedrin, there's a debate about what was the nature of the tree that Adam and Chava ate from. The question in turn should be from all of us, who cares? It's a great question. And the answer in turn has to be, there's some lesson to be learned. No, again, we don't know. So who cares? Unless they're trying to teach us a lesson. Now, the knee-jerk response of everyone, unfortunately, is it's an, it was an apple, of course. Now, an apple, I, I got a book that was recently published. An apple is only an 800-year-old idea, and it came from the Christians, ironically. There's no rabbinic sources, no depictions, no illustrations, no mention of apples, certainly in our tradition, much, not much outside of it, that it was an apple. In fact, there were no apples in you know, that, that side of the world until... Not too long ago, you know, in the, in the scheme of things. I guess, 
I will bet you, I could be wrong, I didn't do the research, I'll bet you Snow White is from the Christian depiction, or in turn ours, of that tree, right? There are three opinions in the Gemara. One opinion is that it was a fig tree, and they ate from a fig. Another opinion is it was a bread tree, and a, sounds ridiculous. Um, third opinion is it was a vine of grapes. Those are the three opinions. Each one of them comes attached to a message in the Gemara, and I think very much relates to the life of Noah. So, one by one. First, the grapes. Grapes is easier connected to Noah in terms of what we just discussed. Noah becomes intoxicated from grapes at the end of his life. But hold up, what does it have to do with... Goes like this. First, the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin on Daf Ayin says, Vayachanoch Ish Ha'adama, those words, according to the rabbi, Ish Ha'adama is a reference to Adam. He was Ish Ha'adama, he came from the ground, and he's repeating the sin of Adam. That's the way they say it. And they say that bad things often, or always, no, often come from intoxication. That's the way they say it. And as a result, they link up his fall at the end to the fall of Adam and Chava from Etz Hadat. What's the description further? They weren't intoxicated, but their decision, the way they understand it, to eat from a grape tree, which brings wine, is symbolic. What's the symbol? The symbol is sin. Sin gets associated with grapes, so in the future, you know, we furthermore associate something along those lines. They did. They did. We've talked about that a lot in the past. We'll briefly touch on it now, because it's very relevant. Give me a minute on that. The pasuk here in Parashat Noah, which describes him planting that tree, almost, it's, it's very quick. It says he plants a vineyard, and he drinks from the wine, and he becomes intoxicated, and he exposes himself. Very quick. Oh, take years? No, no, it's a great question. It's a great question. So, so... There it is, Beatrice. It's Noah, isn't it? There is no process. Ibn Ezra, I discovered this today, right, when I was thinking this through, Ibn Ezra quotes from a Midrash. It's a Midrash that we can all open up and see, which says, one opinion is that the wine was produced that day. That's a very telling description, because that's exactly who Noah was. The same decision of Adam and Hava, pause for a second, their decision as well. They live in a garden where there's no process, where they don't need to work for their food. There's no kotzvedardar, where there is no child pangs in birth, no nine months of care, none of that. And their decision to detach the tree from the, from the, the fruit from the tree is a decision to launch themselves into that world of process. Noah is the antithesis. Noah is the one who can't stand that world of process. Noah is the embodiment of the mabul. Noah is, there's no grapes which turn into wine. It's wine immediately. He returns to Adam and Chava, but he reverses it in that respect with regards to this direction. Noah as well, in a very real way, as we mentioned a moment ago, was the one in the eyes of the rabbis who makes the first plow. First plow means no process with regards to production of bread. According to one opinion in the Gemara and in the Midrash, this tree was a tree which grew wheat or alternatively bread. 
Rabbis, in fact, have a description in the days of Mashiach, Masechet Shaban Daf Lamed, trees will grow bread. I don't take it literally. I understand it as when all is said and done, there's no longer process, it's over. So it's almost as if they too, they pulled the bread off the tree and Noah kind of wants to bring us back to the easy production of the bread. It means that those two opinions already in the Midrash. Again, the opinion that the tree was a wheat or bread tree, where they pull it off and now you need to work in order to produce bread. Noah is the opposite of that in their description of it. The second opinion, or whatever second opinion for our purpose is that it was wine or grapes, on Noah as well. A quick intoxication, wine immediately, no process. What about fig tree? What's that? They used fig leaves. Yeah, was oh, that what you said? Yeah, 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 exactly. In, in fact, the Gemara, yeah, so the fig leaves. The Gemara says, why would you say fig leaves? The Gemara says with regards to bread, it says because only when you begin eating bread, I told you the logic on wine, uh, on grapes, when you start eating bread, solids, you're at an age where you start to think independently. That's their vision. That prior to that, you're kind of connected to your mother still and you're not thinking as an independent person. But the third opinion in the Midrash, as we mentioned, is a fig tree. And why so? So as Beatrice says, because that's what they use to cover themselves. So Pesukim and Bereshit say, they cover themselves with, they make loincloth cloth for themselves with the leaves of a fig tree. So it makes sense that they took the fig. Why is the Torah adding that detail? They took from the figs. What do we know? Rama said it a second ago about Noah at the end. Noah at the end not only becomes intoxicated, becomes naked as well. Clothing demonstrates is the best representation of that process in life. Not everything is exposed. Things take time and you're not always going to know everything or be able to see everything. That's what clothing represents. Noah, the he has nothing to do with figs per se, but the reason of the figs. The, the reason they suggest it was a fig tree is because what made the clothing on them afterwards was the fig leaves. It means figs as well in the description of eating from the tree is entering into a process life, one in which we wear clothing, in which everything's not exposed, exposed and directly accessible. Noah is the opposite of that. Noah is the nakedness. Noah is the one who sees everything and needs to see everything. There's no waiting, there's no anticipation, there's no patience, there's no long-term vision and perspective. That's the Noah of Parashat Noah throughout, from beginning until end. So to piece it all together, it means that Parashat Noah describes for us God's transition. Now he didn't need a transition, it's God. But it's a lesson to each of us. It's a transition for us to pay attention to, to heed the call of what happened over here. God sees there's evil, let's call that a challenge in our own lives, and God therefore says, end it. Who's the embodiment of the ending? Noah. God, after the Mabul says, you know something? Maybe not. You know something? Let's have a long-term plan. In fact, the Pasuk says, and he restores seasons, and day and night. That's all process. That's all time. Noah now, Beatrice, is the same Noah, but out of place. 
There's, uh, you know, I, I, I remember there was a teacher when I was in the school who had specific political views, and when I was in the school, in one way or another, was a very engaging teacher. Students loved this teacher's class. You were able to debate and discuss and whatever. The world, the Jewish world, the community at large has moved in different ways. Same teacher when I came to teach was still around and lost popularity because he or she didn't move with the time. And not that he or she needed to change their perspective or view, but by definition, when you're not speaking the same language or even an appropriate language, it means you're somewhat out of date and you're not able to relate. The Noah that we know from the beginning of the parasha, at that juncture in time, in the way that God is teaching us the lesson of dealing with humanity is Ish Sadiq Tamim. That's the right person for the job. It's exactly who you need. You don't want him pleading for the people. It's an end game vision. There's no process. You don't want him to be the individual who sees in people the best and let's look down the line and guys, let's work hard in order to change things. No, we want at that point, says us reading the storyline, we want the end game person, the person who makes the plow to get around any sweat, the person who does, doesn't need any of those fig leaves covering him, so to speak, even at the beginning of the story. It's not a different Noah, it's the same Noah. The person who uh, might even uh, just wish or imagine that wine comes immediately, right? Almost the way the Torah hints it to us. The end of the parasha, when Noah disembarks, when he comes out into a new world, it's the same world as beforehand, but it's the world where we now realize God's message of process. We now realize that God says, nothing's gonna work if you think it's gonna be immediate. There's no such reality. That's not the world we have. It's not the world we ever will have again. Oh, it's in that moment that he's in Isha Adama. Yes, it's negative Isha Adama at that point, because the Isha Adama is, so to speak, the Adam in Gan Eden. That's not, that's not who we need any longer. That's not who you and I can be or should be. Not our relationships with one another, not our relationships with God, not our perspective on Israel or anything in life. Nothing will be easy. Nothing is supposed to be easy. The perspective, the mindset, which is so hard to do in the moment all the time to say, this is wrong. But maybe it's going to change. Maybe I need to allow, without my manipulation, too much. Without me shutting it down for this to develop. Maybe I need to let my child go off in this direction because that's how they'll discover themselves. Maybe my relationship with others, with God, needs to be something that I see as developing instead of getting overwhelmed in this moment by the severities and difficulties which seem so stuck in place. That's the Noah at the end of Parashat Noah who can't see that and isn't that personality. Truth is, the rabbis have this. At the end of Ma'aseh Bereshit, the Pasuk has that word, Bihibare'am. It says, this is the creation of the world, heavens and earth, Bihibare'am. And that word, it doesn't say Bibriyatam, it says Bihibare'am. And the Midrash says, read it not as Bihibare'am, but unscramble the word and find in it, Be'avraham. The world is Be'avraham. The world is a world in which Avraham's lifestyle, his perspective, his approach to matters is the only one that's really going to work. We get stuck in the moment all the time. We say, it can't get better, so let's shut it down. Let's set this person in place. Instead of realizing there's something, there's something engendering greatness and growth in following through in the process. 
some time ago, and I use it as an example all the time in this class, where we're talking about a similar idea in one of the 10 dozen other places where I talk about this idea. Someone said that um, they feel that when they plan trips for their family, um, everything is lost on the vacation. They used to feel this way. They said they spend weeks planning the vacation and then the vacation goes by in seconds and the children are complaining the whole time and there's no time to enjoy. Does everyone feel this way? But someone said it out loud and it was for me very inspiring. And it was not worth it until they realized that the planning of the trip needs to be part of the trip and the fun of the trip. Right? In other words, it's a description of in a very microcosmic way, when we plan vacations of our whole life, we assume things are going to get better when. We assume we need to be there now instead of saying, this is the growth stages at every point. The perspective needs to be an Avraham perspective instead of a Noah perspective. Parashat Noah in a, in, a, in a sentence is the parasha that enters us into such a mode of thought. We were introduced to it already at the end of parasha, or at the end of the story of Adam and Hava. It's a description of they need out of this life in which there's no challenge and no growth and so on and so forth. But then the Torah pauses us and says, you know something, for one reason or another, I'm going to teach you the same lesson again. That's what happens in Parashat Noah. The same lesson you just learned from Adam and Hava, among others, let me repeat that by means of the story of Noah. Let me tell you the story of Noah and pay attention to what it was and to what it became. That's what we began this class with. What was it? It was Rak Rak Kolayom. What did it become? Yetzin Lev Adam Ra Mine Urav. Nothing changed. Everything changed. The approach changed, the perspective changed, the direction changed. That's, that's the difference. You're planning the same vacation now, but the perspective is altogether different. I'm saying the fun is in the planning now. I'm realizing that the homework, I still have little kids, the homework is, as annoying, is still part of this process, which is, and I need to see it as such, well, this is the fun. This is what I'm supposed to. Yes, there's something down the line, and at, I'm told from my parents it never does get easy. It just means she, my, my mother says often, she says, little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems. Oh, come on. Oh, come on. Ma, you don't remember when they were little any longer. But anyway, whatever. It's little kids, big problems, big kids, big problems. That's what I think. But regardless, what I'm saying is, okay, there are those problems, no question. Uh, but, but the reality of those problems is if we get stuck in them assuming we have the quick fix to them, we're assuming a mabul is appropriate. If we get stuck in them and we imagine and think that this crisis and difficulty in Israel, well, it just needs to go away and it just will go away, uh, we're totally mistaken and wrong. We dream of that all the time instead of constantly and consistently reminding ourselves that we can engender growth happiness even in moments of difficulty. It's not to say we yearn for war, has shalom. It is to say, and it's not to say we embrace or even accept it. It is to say that we wrap our heads around reality and say within this, and it's what we all see, and it's what in today's day and age is like 
blown out of proportion more than ever before all the positive that is inherent in it. How many videos do we get a day and stories and articles about all the beautiful things that are coming out of a crisis which had no positive? So much the unity through a long-term perspective instead of being stuck in the moment in uh, the disunity. So we've come together because we look forward to something. I, it's a scary thought. I hate to say it like this, but the irony is the scary thought is what would have happened had we not had war in Israel. It's said all the time, certainly in the media, but it's said uh, in conversations with people all the time. My sisters who live there described a scary country. My sisters, one of my sisters who moved there years ago, what's that? In the, in the government in Israel. In the gov one of my sisters said to me that there were serious conversations, are, I mean, were, of moving back to America because Israel was a scary place to live. Internally, they were scared about a civil war, about a war amongst the people, in a, in a literal sense. So I'm not saying that war is positive, certainly not. Massacres are downright evil and horrible. But to imagine them as all it is, and we're going to avoid it by somehow clamping it down, is to be delusional, is to think like Noah, is to be the Ish Sadiq Tamim prior to the Mabul, at a time in which Deen, so to speak, is what it is. The truth is we do have, in, in Parashat Bereshit, we've talked about it more than once, there is this intermingling in our own lives, in our appreciation of God between Deen and Rahamim. And I'll just mention the, one of the early Rashis on the Torah and the message that I think is inherent, which is identical to what we're discussing within that uh, statement of Rashi. Rashi quotes how the first Pasuk describes how Bereshit bara Elohim et HaShamayim et It's God's name, instead of focusing on, as we just did last week, on bara or any of that business. It's on the name of God. It's Elohim. Elohim denotes strength. Alim in Hebrew means strong. In the eyes of the rabbis, that's called Midat Hadim. That's the letter of the law of God. That's the way we're describing the Mabul. It's, if, if that's wrong, it's done. It's over with. Then, in Perishit Perik Bet, in Pasuk Dalet, the the Pasuk says, Ele toledot That's what I was referring to earlier, the Avraham aspect, very appropriately here. Biyom asot Adonai Elohim Eretz There's a few changes. First and foremost, God's name. It was Elohim, the cold, strong God. Midatadim, this time it's Hashem Elohim. Not that he's cozy and cuddly, but that's Rahamim, that's merciful. I know his name. Oh, that's a shift. Also, it's a shift. Again, I mentioned the Bihibariam. The shift is Eretz Vishamayim, whereas the first Pasuk says, Bereshit Baralim et HaShamayim et HaArz. First the heavens and then the earth. It's, so to speak, a God world. It's the heavens, which we can't touch. And only then the earth. This one is the earth and then the heavens. What shifted? What changes? Rashi has the funny description. It says, initially, quote unquote, God thought to create with midat hadin, with the strict letter of the law, with the no long-term perspective. He realized the world can't exist in such a fashion. So he connected it to midat rahamim. He connected it to mercy. Do you know what that description is about? It's about everything we've been describing and discussing throughout. It's a description of, well, I saw at the beginning of Noah it needed to end. Why did it need to end? This can't continue. This is rotten. This is terrible. Midat hadin. But that won't work with human beings. It never has and never will. We need process, we need opportunity, we need a space to grow. Our children do, we personally do, our community does, our nation does, our land does. We need Eretz v'shamayim, we need Adonai Elohim. 
Our relationship with God, in short, our relationship with the world, is very much the description of after the Mabul. So to state clearly what we began with, the description the beginning of the parasha of Noah as an ish sadiq tamim, and at the end of the parasha as an isha adama, in contrast to what I said last night, I said at the beginning of the class, there was no change in Noah. There was a change in the relationship of God to the world. What does that mean? God didn't actually change. There's a change in our understanding of what it means to be as human beings. We began the parashas believing we can end without process. It'll be just wonderful vacations all the time, and they'll be long with no fighting and childbirth and growth, and everything will just be rosy and peachy and fantastic, and there's a realization that never was and never will be, and instead, an embrace of everything that comes in the middle and everything that leads up to it. And the Noah at the end of the parasha is the same Noah we knew at the beginning. I don't think he was per se getting drunk. I don't know that he was exposing himself. But those sorts of symbolic gestures are so much the Noah we knew at the beginning. He didn't change at all. He was like that teacher who I described in the school. He was the same person from beginning until end. But our understanding, no comment. There's no hints, no hints whatsoever on that one, Beatrice, right? But the description in short, the description in short is that it's not Noah who changed. It's our, it's God, as it were, perspective, and in turn, our understanding of creation of life as it is.